Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Kara Bruce, the ABI's resident scholar for the fall of 2013 and an associate professor at the University of Toledo College of Law. Solyndra and Washington Mutual have traveled through the Chapter 11 process in recent years. From an operations standpoint, these companies have been liquidated, but a very significant part of them lives on. Their parent companies have been reorganized and now serve as holding companies for new and different businesses. This reorganization strategy works to preserve valuable tax attributes through the Chapter 11 process. Professor Diane Lord-Stick from Seattle University School of Law joins me today to talk about this use of Chapter 11. Her paper, Bankruptcy's Corporate Tax Loophole, will be published in a forthcoming volume of the Fordham University Law Review. Welcome, Diane. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So bankruptcy's corporate tax loophole is certainly a provocative title. In general terms, what is the loophole and how does it work? Well, imagine a company with a failing business that is drowning in debt. On the bright side, this company also possesses a very valuable asset, its tax attributes, including net operating losses and credit carryovers. This asset is unique because, unlike most assets, if the company liquidates through a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, it will be extinguished, that asset will be extinguished, and its value will not be realized by any shareholders or creditors. On the other hand, even if the company substantially liquidates the business using Chapter 11, it can, thanks to a loophole, preserve this valuable asset. And even better, it can direct the value of that asset to its preferred stakeholders, rather than have the asset's value allocated among stakeholders according to bankruptcy's distributional norms. Solar cell manufacturer Solyndra took advantage of this loophole, as you call it, uh, which you highlight in your paper. Uh, why don't you give us an idea of that case so we can wrap our heads around this concept? Sure. Well, in September t- 2011, the financially troubled solar cell manufacturing company Solyndra LLC and its parent, 360 Degree Solar Holdings Incorporated, filed voluntary petitions for bankruptcy protection in U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Delaware. Now, although Solyndra filed faced a host of financial and economic difficulties, it did not pursue liquidation under Chapter 7. Instead, Solyndra filed under Chapter 11, which is often cited as a source of rehabilitative relief, enabling debtors to reorganize and emerge from bankruptcy with a fresh start. Nonetheless, it seems that from the outset, the company intended to utilize Chapter 11's liquidation mechanisms rather than its rehabilitative devices. In fact, almost immediately after filing for bankruptcy, the company sought court approval to sell substantially all of its assets. Then, the company advanced a Chapter 11 plan that contemplated the liquidation of Solyndra LLC, which was the operating subsidiary, as well as the reorganization of 360-degree Solar Holdings, which was the corporate parent. Of course, following a series of sales, the parent that would emerge from bankruptcy bore very little resemblance to its previous incarnation as the holding company to a solar cell manufacturer, with no operating subsidiary, no manufacturing assets, no significant employee base, and no active business. The reorganized parent was arguably a mere shell. Of course, by pursuing this quasi or pseudo liquidation, the parent also emerged with Solyndra's valuable tax attributes which may generate up to $350 million of federal income tax savings for any investments that are subsequently stuffed into the reorganized parent. 
So what is 360 Degrees Solar Holdings, or the parent company of Solyndra, doing now? Well, as a private company that has only been out of bankruptcy for a short time, a period of months, um, it is difficult to obtain a complete uh, picture of its activities. Most likely, it is engaged currently in capital raising to pursue an acquisition strategy. This is the case for the Washington Mutual Reorganized Parent, which also emerged from Chapter 11 uh, with substantial tax attributes related to its liquidated subsidiary businesses. When companies engage in this process, preserve tax attributes through parent company reorganizations, who are the major beneficiaries and who, if anyone, is harmed? Well, it depends on the case and the dynamics of that particular restructuring. A central claim of my article is that the debtor's valuable tax attributes are transformed by the tax laws into marketable property that then escapes Chapter 11's distributional norms because these tax attributes are not consistently treated as assets or as property of the estate in Chapter 11's absolute priority safeguards. In other words, bankruptcy law fails to provide an efficient mechanism for recognizing the value enhancements to the debtor's stock and for ensuring that such value is allocated fairly. In Solyndra's case, the major beneficiaries were certain equity security holders and creditors at the expense of certain other creditors. But it will depend on the balance of power in any given case, as well as the strength of various coalitions that form in, in the negotiation process. How does this result, uh, the one that was achieved in Solyndra or in similar cases, differ from what would happen if a business liquidated in bankruptcy under Chapter 7 or uh, was acquired outside of bankruptcy? Sure. Um, well, when a company liquidates in Chapter 7, uh, it, its valuable tra- tax attributes are extinguished. This outcome is dictated by both the tax and bankruptcy laws. Uh, and when a company is acquired outside of bankruptcy, the tax laws impose significant limitations on the future use of a lost corporation's valuable tax attributes uh, because the, uh, the acquisition, uh, to the extent it, it creates a change in control, then these limitations kick in. But because these latter tax laws make an exception for bankruptcy reorganizations, Chapter 11 offers a unique opportunity to shed unwanted assets while retaining the future benefit of these tax attributes. And that's, of course, the loophole that I'm, that I'm discussing in my paper. I'd like to get a sense of how prevalent this practice is. Is this something that companies frequently take advantage of? And also, what type of company is uh, best suited for this treatment? This tr- strategy has been used by many companies in recent years. Uh, of course, Solyndra is a prime example and the one that I rely on in my paper. But Washington Mutual uh, and also PMI Group have also used a substantially similar strategy. The device works best when the operational assets are housed in an unincorporated flow-through entity with a corporate parent. This way, even if the operational entity is liquidated, the valuable tax attributes still rest on the books of the corporate parent. So that's, of course, what gives us the quasi or pseudo-liquidation strategy because we are liquidating a subsidiary and reorganizing a corporate parent. Diane, in your paper, you propose a variety of reforms that, that seek to close this loophole. Uh, Can you talk us through them? Sure. Well, because the loophole arises at the intersection of tax and bankruptcy law, I propose reforms to both areas. In the bankruptcy realm, I propose modifications to bankruptcy disclosure rules to ensure that debtors fully disclose valuable tax attributes as assets at the commencement of the case. Then I propose modifications to the Chapter 11 plan confirmation test 
to ensure that the best interest of the creditor's analysis takes into account the net present value of the debtor's available tax attributes. Then on the tax side, I propose amendments that would prevent corporate debtors from re, uh, receiving the benefit of preferential tax laws unless they are actually reorganizing the business enterprise. And, and of course, uh, that would be an, uh, determined using a, a substance over form analysis so that we can avoid this quasi or pseudo liquidation uh, loophole that, that has been taking place. A theme that I see running through your argument is that bankruptcy and tax laws have have largely developed in separate spheres and and therefore perhaps separately are designed to achieve separate goals. And your proposal here seeks to reconcile those two areas, bring them closer together, at least in this one respect. Uh, Do you have any broader thoughts on, on how bankruptcy and tax laws may be better reconciled in the future? Well, in the most general terms, I would say that it seems that as Chapter 11 has evolved in recent years, it doesn't always comport with the tax law's assumption of Chapter 11 as a means of achieving a fresh start reorganization. So one way to overcome wrinkles of this sort would be to encourage greater interaction by the IRS and U.S. trustee in making sure that the legal consequences are assigned to the economic substance of the Chapter 11 plan rather than to its legal form. Bankruptcy courts can also refer cases and proceedings to the U.S. tax court for guidance on the tax implications of decisions rendered in bankruptcy. Uh, In sum, and I I think probably at the broadest level, we need to ensure that the tax and bankruptcy laws intersect smoothly, uh, efficiently, and also uh, equitably. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Diane, for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for, for inviting me. You can find Diane's article in a forthcoming volume of the Fordham Law Review or by contacting the author at dickdi, D-I-C-K-D-I, at seattleu.edu. You can always find more than 130 podcasts at our website, podcast.abi.org. Until next time, from the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is resident scholar Kara Bruce.